Hey you, and thanks so much for joining me in our newest episode of Chardbib. DC Builder is by far one of the best people you'll come across in crypto. A boy who always believes in the best of people and things. He has a special kind of charm in a forest that can sometimes feel cloaked in darkness. I always love listening to him and I'm graced with learning so much each time, all while taking in his particular worldview. In this episode, you'll see him showcase his usual strengths. Being ruled by books and knowledge, a diligent perfectionist crypto is lucky to have that doesn't always deserve. Before we head on in, I do want to announce some disclaimers for audience listening safety. This podcast has been edited to preserve your listening pleasure. As always, please don't feel offended by my dizzy demeanor and potential instances of inaccurate references and poorly expressed opinions. I get caught in the vibes, but you're going to get the gists. Thank you so much for joining me again, Anon. I appreciate you so, 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 so much for being here. And I hope you can feel me sending this virtual hug out to you. I love you and can't wait for you to join. So come chill, relax, and let's hang out with DC together. Um, I was going to say, your voice sounds so... Oh, it went away. I turned off my camera. Oh, can we just use well, it to chat? Or is okay, it yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah just yeah. to chat. Otherwise, I'll just be talking into, like, the realm. Yeah, the realm. <laughs> um, your voice sounds so different on recording. No idea. <laughs> Never heard <laughs> myself. Don't really hear myself often. Um, How's it going? Good. Good. How about you? Pretty good. How many months have you guys been in Lisbon now? Uh, four. Uh, but like I've also like traveled in between, and I've also like been like all around. So so two months of like straight time in Lisbon. Yeah, but in a four 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 months time span. Is it actually cold there? Uh, it's like ten to fifteen degrees Celsius. Means nothing to me. <laughs> uh, fifteen degrees Celsius to Fahrenheit. No idea. Doesn't search for me. Just just Google search. 59, 60. Ooh, okay, yeah. So actually kind of chilly. It's okay. But it's winter, so it's it's good for winter. Yeah. Um, I have some pretty hot questions for you today, so I'm excited. Also, low-key, I had, like, everyone on that list, but everyone was mostly hyped about you, so props. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. Literally, people, like, I didn't know who knew you. They're like, oh, my God, you're, like, interviewing DC Build. I'm like, yeah. And they're like, oh, my God. <laughs> It's it's still weird to me to hear those things. It's like why you're so popular? What was your claim? No to idea. Fame? Let's get started right away. What's your claim to fame? Uh, I wrote an article about Altus in October, November, two thousand twenty-one. Mm-hmm. I guess that's like my biggest claim to fame. I guess I yeah. published that on Mirror, and it got like two thousand reads in like three days. And I got like a thousand five hundred followers that week on Twitter, just from the article alone. But it was like when nobody knew about L 2s but everybody wanted to know about L 2s and mm-hmm. it hit that like sweet spot time where there was like announcements about Optimism and Arbitrum coming out, and like Starknet just launching and things like yeah. that. So 
But you must have also had quite the following already because otherwise I wouldn't have reached that many people. Mm, I had like 900 followers. No way. When when I released the the L2 article. It's yeah. called the, the, the ultimate guide to L2s on Ethereum. Mm-hmm. You can still find it. That is wild. Okay, cool. So I feel like I've heard a little bit about your crypto journey before, but tell me again. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, so I've been in the crypto space since late 2017, early 2018. It started with me just, um, I followed a newsletter in high school and it just like had Bitcoin and Ethereum prices in it. And I was like a bit curious about like what that is. So I subscribed to like a crypto newsletter and like I started like learning more about how it works. Started like and what watching... were you doing like before this? Before oh, you got I was in 2017, I was 16. So I was <laughs> in high school, second year of high school. So like sophomore going to, to junior year. And uh, I was just interested in tech in general, like web development, AI, ML, um, anything tech related. I was really into math and physics. Huh? Were you programming already? Yeah, yeah. I was programming since I was 14 when I was like started with web development, like HTML, CSS, JavaScript, and React, and the rest of the the stack. Yeah, so um, at the time, I was like really into um, AI, ML. Um, because uh, I just saw this presentation from Jensen Huang, the, C- the current CEO of NVIDIA, about um, AI and like the, pot- the potential you can do with it. And so I got pulled on AI when I was like 16. And I started learning a lot of math um, because in order to do uh, AI ML, you need to understand how like uh, gradient descent works, so like partial differential um, equations and stuff like that. So I learned a bunch of like math, and part of my math journey was uh, going through Khan Academy and a few courses on MIT OpenCourseWare. And I, I was watching a channel at the time called 3 Blue and Brown. And he uh, one day released a video on how Bitcoin actually works. So just like an intro to, to Bitcoin, an intro to cryptography, and how cryptography is used in fun ways in Bitcoin to solve the, the, the Byzantine's general problem. And that sort of like is like my intro to crypto in a more more like interesting way for me before uh, than like just like looking up prices each week. Yeah. And so like growing up, did you always feel that you were kind of different? Obviously, you're very STEM focused and you were easily excited by it as in it was just very organic for you to get into all of this. Mm, uh, I wasn't necessarily STEM focused growing up. I didn't. I, I grew up in Spain. Uh, I was born in the Czech Republic, grew up in Spain. And in Spain, STEM is in general like looked high upon, but it's 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 not something that everybody pursues or like finds it interesting. It's just for like people that like are curious about it. And at the time, like I wasn't like I was good at school, but I wasn't good at math and it wasn't something fun to me in any way. Um for me the interest in math came just from my curiosity on being on the internet, watching videos about like different things you can do in general in life. Uh, like I was looking into like medicine, I was looking into like chemistry, biology, physics, math, everything. And there's a lot of good content creators around maths, um, and they just made me appreciate um, just just how beautiful of the of the science it is. And, and said, that's, that's sort of why I started going more STEM focused. Yeah. 
And so you say you're not good at math. Does that mean that, that it's like kind of hard for you to do more of it now or? I, I was not good at math growing up. Uh, so like when I was a kid from like five years old until like 15, I was not somebody that you would go in class and ask a math question. But after, after I went on, on the internet, then I started learning a lot of math and even like university grade math when I was in high school. Uh, because I, I wanted to do ML stuff, and in order to do ML stuff, I just had to understand a, a few things, like linear algebra and like transforms and stuff. Uh, so that's that's sort of like what motivated me. And then eventually, at the 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 the, uh, the senior year of high school, uh, instead of going to math class in high school, I submitted to this program to go to college classes instead. And mm -hmm. so I was just go out, out of high school and then go into university for for lectures around different things okay. in math. Um, all right. So I want to talk about like the growing up part and also kind of your interest um, now that we've talked about the crypto part. Mm -hmm. Socially speaking, your friends, the people that we've met, everyone works in mm -hmm. crypto. What happened there? Yeah. How did that evolve? It's uh, actually fun um, because like during COVID, I had no friends and the only people that like I talked to were on crypto Twitter usually. Mm -hmm. And once I was able to travel, I went to uh, Lisbon, Eat mm. Lisbon in 2021. That was my, my first crypto event. And I met Miguel there, Miguel Piedrafita at mm -hmm. M1GalPF on Twitter. And we became great friends. Uh, he is from Spain. Uh, I grew up in Spain. So we bonded over that and over crypto in general. We have like the same passions for tech, AI, and a bunch of other things. So we just like started talking. We like, intermittently started changing between Spanish and English while we were talking. <laughs> it was really fun, fun days. Yeah, and, and in Lisbon, I started meeting a bunch of people from Twitter as well. So I met like the, the L2 Beat team. I met uh, the ZK Sync team, uh, a couple of people from random teams that, I, that I, I've always looked up on uh, on Twitter. Uh, also the Ave team. That was like my, 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 the first people that I really looked up to that I met in person. So I met Stani, I met the entire team. Um, I hanged out with them. It was really fun. Went to Rave. And so through them, essentially, I started meeting more and more people. And at the time, I was just looking for like interesting things to do. Uh, I was working for um, what later became Morales, which is like a Web3 development platform uh, and toolkit for developers. And I was writing technical articles, right? So I was doing like the things like uh, the L2 article and things around that area. So I just started like talking to people on Twitter and meeting them IRL at conferences, right? Like in 2022 is when I really started traveling and when I met most of my friends. Uh, I went to Eat Denver, where I met my, my current girlfriends, where I met, uh, like, I think we met there or we met later? Yeah, Amsterdam. Uh, Amsterdam. Okay, I was after Denver. Yeah, so in, in Denver is where I met like most of my friends. Uh, the alongside team for which I worked for six months um yeah it's just a bunch of people and eventually it's just like once you go to conferences you have a your your core group of friends and they have friends and it's just easier to meet people that way so um the other czech friends were they in crypto and you met them or did you meet you met them and like you grew up with them though uh i only have one czech friend that i got into crypto and that we started traveling with together and yeah. he now works at gitcoin as a Love first active got it okay cool so like the tall bunch of Czech dudes that we saw at Bogota, 
they were kind of just like people that you. Uh, one, one is my best friend from high school and still to this day. And the second one is one of his good friends, which whom with I became friends later on. And he joined crypto like last year. He wasn't in crypto before. So he was our friend, but he wasn't a crypto friend. Got it. And this he was became, the thing that yeah. drove you to, oh, what? Sorry? Like, I remember you got really sick. Was it last year? And then he drove you to the hospital. Was it this guy? Oh, that was, that, yeah, that's my best friend. I was in, at ETH Prague, I got food poisoning the last day. Uh. It's fun stuff. <laughs> um, speaking of which, random, what are your favorite foods? Uh, on the top of my head, I'd probably have to say potaje, which is uh, a Cuban food, Cuban national food. Um, I'm half Czech, half Cuban by blood, so I have a lot of family in Cuba. Um, and potaje is like the stew, um, which you do with, um, uh, beans, like black beans, um, beef, rice, uh, garlic, like a lot of veggies, uh, and just, just, you put them in, in a big pot and you, you boil them for, for hours until the, the beef is tender. And then you have like this big stew with rice and you usually eat a banana with it as well or salad, mm -hmm. avocado. Okay, so a lot of cultural influences in your life. How mm -hmm. would you describe yourself? Like, where do you feel most influenced in your upbringing? Who made you today? What made you today? Mm, probably my dad is who made me most of who am I today. Mm -hmm. um, he grew up in Cuba, uh, went to travel to the Czech Republic um, to, to study um, because he was one of the best students uh, of Cuba and of his year. And he got uh, the option to study in other countries that were part of the SSR. So the Soviet Union um, was friendly with Cuba in the 60s, late 60s and early 70s. And so he got the ability to study in three different countries, whether Russia, Bulgaria, or the Czech Republic. He chose the Czech Republic. He met my mom. Uh, and eventually, uh, here I am. <laughs> <laughs> so so my, my dad uh, my dad is, is like someone who, who's been working in, in, in um, like engineering and uh, metallurgy, just making, making steel. Um, but more, more on the business side of things. So like selling steel products, um, whether it's from like different types of alloys, different types of uh, extrusions made from those alloys and then the machines that produce those, those alloys. Uh, so he, he always like taught, taught me about like the world and, and just how, how it works in general, like incentives, um, how people like just think about life in general. And that, that's sort of like what shaped me early on, I would say. Yeah. Um, in terms of like nationality, I, I guess like I'm pretty neutral. Um, I'm, I would say that I'm more Czech than anything else, but like, there's still like parts of me that are Cuban, parts of me that are Spanish and parts of me that are just, I don't know, internet native that, that do not necessarily belong to any specific country. So it's, it's what for me is mostly access to information on the internet and my dad, Th those two together is sort of what, what made me me definitely vibe with the internet thing i think it's changed so many people's lives just to have information outside of their home life mm -hmm. to access and learn from and so not to get all freudian but what's your relationship with your mom like since we're on the topic mm, i mean it's great like i love my mom but but um she she shaped me more emotionally than than sort of in my interests or or like what i focus my time on 
Uh, she was a stay-at-home mom while I was growing up in Spain and um, just took care of me. I had to learn while, while I was in school in Spain. So like most of my school was in, in Spanish, but then I, I went to a bilingual sort of like second, like middle school, yeah, bilingual middle school. And so I had like half, half of the subjects in Spanish, half of the subjects in English. And then I had like the second language, which everybody learns in Spain, which is French. And then since I knew that I was going to the Czech Republic eventually, um, back for high school, I started learning German a little bit because that's the second language you learn there. And while, while I was in school, I learned those. But when I came back home, I had to uh, learn Czech um, because when I was growing up from first until sixth grade, I had to do like exams in the Czech Republic to pass grades in the Czech Republic if I ever want to go back to the Czech system. So it was like a, like a, like a diff, diff exam between like what I learned in Spain, I had to relearn in Czech and then do an exam in the, in the, in the Czech Republic. So yeah, it was fun, fun to, to, to learn. Um, and yeah, my mom taught me Czech most of the time at home. We spoke Czech, uh, and yeah, uh, I guess eventually it's, it's sort of what, what led me to sort of start learning more online as well. Yeah. Let's talk about your persona. So how do you see it as different from like your personal person? Mm, so for me, like DC Builder is something that I used to more of like psyops myself uh, more than anything else. I wasn't necessarily building anything at the time. I, I, I did know like I have a bunch, I, I did have a bunch of engineering skills at the time. So like I knew web development. I had a bunch of uh, experience um, building computer vision applications in Python and OpenCV and a few like AIML platforms like TensorFlow and Keras. But I wasn't necessarily building in crypto. Like everything that I was doing in crypto was mostly just like technical writing. And so I sort of wanted to get into building. And so that's sort of like why I psyops myself to, to, to build by just putting myself on the spot by saying like, oh, I'm DC builder. And then people just go up, uh, up to you and ask you, like, what do you build? Got right? it. So it's like, it's, it's sort of, it's sort of like something that always is in the back of your, of your head to like sort of, um, gives you like subliminal messages. Yo, why, why are you not doing anything if, if your, if your name is that? Uh, so that's sort of like the early, early motivational or early rationale for, for, for the DC builder name and why it was pseudonymous. It was because like, there was a bunch of people on Twitter, um, people like Xerox tuba and a bunch of others that, um, were respected for their ideas more than anything else. Um, and so I, I thought it was a nice way of just like separating who you are as a person from your ideas and just letting people judge you or communicate you based upon of what, what they think of your ideas and not of your persona. And thinking about your core personality from your obviously like real life, super personal self versus the character of DC Builder, which we all know and love, what would you describe as the top three adjectives that describe both? I guess curious is one of them. Self-driven probably would be the other one. And I can't really think with a third one. It's, it's, I'd have to take a long time to think like about like three specific ones, but I think those two are good, like self-driven and curious. Yeah, no, I agree. The third one is always the hardest. Yeah. Because, yeah. <laughs> I think allocation-wise, the first two really like do it anyway. And so um, in crypto, technically you've been around for almost a third of the entire industry lifespan. How have you seen it evolve and change? 
Hmm. Especially like both when it comes to, of course, the economics and the innovation, but also culturally. Yeah. So culturally, I've been for it a lot less um, because I, I joined Twitter in like April of 2021. So it's less than two years since then. That's before that. I've only seen it evolve like somewhat culturally um, because like I wasn't really like looking at the culture as much as like what it is as a technology. Um, so like from the technological standpoint, like when I when I joined crypto, crypto was, was like Bitcoin and a couple of all the ones that launched like EOS um, during the like the bull market of 2017, uh, Nano, Algorand, all these. But like then also like the Bitcoin forks. There was I, I joined when the days of like Bitcoin Cash. Uh, uh, was still relevant, like all these like Bitcoin forks, um, Bitcoin SV, Bitcoin Diamond, Bitcoin Gold, like all of these <laughs> were, were still like relevant. And Ethereum was was just a platform where you could build smart contracts, but nobody really knew what they were ever going to be used for at the time. Um, like there was like CryptoKitties, there's EtherDelta, which is like a primitive primitive decentralized exchange, and a bunch of others, but um, there wasn't like anything. Um, that people would want to use, um, and eventually, um, I, I, the reason wh- when I like started getting like really really interested in crypto was around early DeFi summer, uh, when when uh, Compound uh, launched, and then MakerDAO launched Dai, uh, Uniswap launched, and just like protocol after protocol started coming up with new ideas, things you could do, like Ave launched. Um, they rebranded themselves from Ethland. It's just like a lot of these things started happening. Um, and like the, the, suddenly for me, the, the sort of spectrum of possibilities for what you could build on top of crypto was getting more, bigger and bigger. And for me, that was like something really exciting um, because the possibilities, like oh, if you extrapolate this growth forward, then you could have like even more and more uh, types of applications with, with different use cases, even non-financial eventually. And, and things like that. So, so I, I just sort of like from, from, from the days where there was barely any applications, but there was already like the base cryptography, like base, base, like distributed systems, um, sort of ground knowledge was already figured out. So from those days until essentially today, where we are, we have like different applications and now we are doing like scaling solutions. We introduced uh, a lot of private systems through using technologies like zero knowledge cryptography. Uh, and things like that. So I think one thing that people struggle with is kind of seeing the long-term vision for blockchain, but not only because it's a young industry. I think a lot of focus, as you touched upon, is kind of finding these other use cases. Obviously, there's a lot of infrastructure still being built, but how do mm-hmm. you see like use cases and the world of crypto in, let's say, another 10 or even 20 years' time? Uh, like, where is crypto evolving in the next 10 to 20 years in terms of use cases? Yeah, because we, I think we want to see a world in which basically blockchain can be applied to anything. But the reality mm-hmm. is that sometimes we do centralized applications a little bit more efficient in the energy that it takes. Um, not to go too deeply into that, but mm-hmm. uh, as a general kind of solution for a lot of infrastructure that we need for technology in general. So what do you see as the dominant use cases outside of DeFi um, for crypto? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like 10 to 20 years, there's, there's probably like every single predicament or a prediction you do for for those 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 uh, time spans is going to be wrong because like just like in two years everything can change in the space uh but i'm trying i'm going to try my best uh so so 
right now, like most people are mostly focused on um, making the networks uh, scalable enough so that they're usable for more people and so that different types of use cases are, are feasible. Um, and uh, there is a bunch of other like user experience focused improvements. Um, for me, I guess the, the ones that are currently standing out the most are mostly rollups and other scaling technologies uh, at, the, at this point in time. And once you sort of have rollups, you have more, more gas costs you can spend or just like more gas, more, more calls you can do and more, more intensive um, applications you can build. So things like potentially like Lens Protocol, who, which is a, a social, social, decentralized social network built on Polygon POS, might become um, cheap to, to sort of scale to hundreds of thousands of users on, on either Ethereum or Rollup or like something that inherits Ethereum security. Um, so there's like the social use cases. Um, there's uh, a bunch of like identity primitives that are being built out, whether it's what, what I work on, WorldCoin, where we're solving civil resistance. Um, um, things like Sysmo, um, where you can have badges for different things that you've done uh, and like aggregate different um, sort of statements together and then do logic based off the, on, on those statements. And you can verify that all of the things in between are valid using zero knowledge proofs. Um, there's improvements on things like account abstraction, which allow you to do um, sort of arbitrary validation logic for transactions and would allow users to, to, do, um, to do a lot more with, with smart contract wallets. Uh, things like social recovery, um, things like uh, transaction delegation, and just like more complex logic with it. So like that, that, that would, that, that's like one of the things that will expand um, the, the use of, of crypto a lot, especially with things like signing, signing with Ethereum. Um, you'll, you'll essentially be able to use any, any modern web app with, with your private keys. And you, 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 you get rid of the old database user account model where you have like your password and email associated to some account on some platform. You just have your private keys and be able to log in everywhere easily. And you'd have like this generalized sort of network where you're able to transfer data and make attestations across those data um, um, without having to reveal um, things you don't want. So you can make broad attestations um, about different parts of your life, whether it's social, whether it's financial, whether it's identity or any other things you care about, you'd be able to make attestations such as um, like my balance on my accounts is more than this, and I'm from this country, and I'm this 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 old, without uh, without revealing anything else besides those those things. So I feel like once you have like this general general framework, you're able to do just so many new types of applications that we haven't really thought about yet because the, the, the toolkit and infrastructure, the toolkits and infrastructures just haven't been here to build it yet. Yeah, it makes sense and definitely really exciting. Um, that was quite comprehensive. We covered a lot of ground in terms of possibilities there. One of the things I was also thinking about is when I was reading the article um, on Soulbound tokens, I think one of the things that I found alarming actually was the concept that we could kind of decentralize and use social attestation for different things that like about me as a person or even reputation building in general. 
I think given mm-hmm. the number of bad actors and not saying like it's specific to crypto, but just that they are out there. How do you feel about that part? Bad actors and SBTs? Um, not necessarily sure how, how those Well, relate. so in the sense like you would have a group of people or um, a decentralized network of people or at least accounts potentially who would be attesting to certain things about you um, as a person. So specifically, um, I don't know what it looks like because it was quite conceptual, but the idea behind it that someone can say that like I am credit worthy, but not based on on-chain activity, but simply because they know me as a person. I would say that this is almost like akin to real life. Um, what do they call those? Like it's not, is it like a witness thing where you go and get like a sample of approval saying, oh, like a character witness almost in that sense. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's just, again, you know, not like uh, uh, comparing it to um, traditional witness like character yeah. statements, but just the idea that like I would be bound by these attestations. Mm. I mean, what you've described is more of like a web of trust type mechanism. By web of trust, I mean you have a network of users that make attestations about each other and their legitimacy or their financial credibility or like a wide, of, wide, wide set of different um, sort of attestations they can make. And then those attestations can be represented as something that is bound to an address which represents that specific person they are testing for. Um, I, I don't necessarily feel like that is just the the the, the full picture of of the of the, what what these kinds of identity permits are even trying to accomplish. Um, there, there's you, you can you can use a mixture of both, right? Like you can use things that are on chain, that uh, whether it's your your financial history or or, or different parts of of your your application usage, uh, and you can make um, proofs of those activities and couple them with uh, attestations of other people and then if 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 those primitives are useful you can you can abstract them away and do some like you, you can build them together in, in different ways to make make a useful protocol for people um, like if if people are for example i don't know like you can do uh if you do insurance right so like insurance is something that's like half half real life half financial Right, like where people do attestations on like how credit worthy you are of the insurance, like how likely you are to be um, injured, for example, let's say if you're a smoker or whatever, then doctors can do attestations on, on you, whether like you're a smoker or you're not a smoker, or, like different things like that, and take like more real life data. And then you can take like other financial data. And just if you couple it together, you can probably make something useful out of it without having to necessarily like be... Um, at the at the mercy or will of people judging you, um, the, you can use any any like they're just building blocks. You can use them however you want. Necessarily, you don't you don't need to necessarily be reliant on any specific component. So that part potentially, I guess we'll see. So I'm going to flirt on the fringes because I, you know, I I think technical topics are really fun, but then ultimately, like uh, I think we probably have a specialized episode where we go over like specific things and then mm-hmm. potentially like factual prep. Um, but okay. So describe your day, like, uh, either at work, how do you start your day and how do you like to structure your day? Mm-hmm. Uh, so currently it's been a bit messy because I've, I've been, uh, recently moving or like I recently moved to Lisbon and I've been traveling a bit, but, uh, one of my sort of goals for this year is to sort of make, make it more structured. Um, so I, I wake up, I guess, I don't know, depends on uh, nine, 10 AM at breakfast, like every, every normal person would. Uh, but in terms of work, 
um, I sort of try to um, plan my, my work hours on the calendar and uh, whether I have meetings or um, things like that. So my, my regular day is depends on like what types of thing I'm currently working on. So like right now I'm working on a state bridge for WorldCoin where you'd be able to make a world AD attestations uh, or verify your, your uniqueness and that you haven't done a specific action. Uh, like let's say like vote on, on snapshot or, or uh, verified a, a lens protocol uh, profile, right? So you could be able to do these um, on different networks. Um, right now we're supporting Polygon POS, right? So like something like this would be like, I just work on, on code for this um, and then go on standup, um, report about the things that I've been building and whether I have any blockers or things like that. So that's like the usual day. It's like normal day where you're like building something, um, you talk to your team and you sort of like learn something new. Like if, if I had to recently relearn Solidity and, and like the testing suit uh, boundary. So I've been uh, just like booking different time slots for, for relearning those things. Um, time slots for, for working on the, on the state bridge and uh, talking to my team. And then in the end of the day, I just like start playing guitar or do some, go to the gym, work out, go outside. What time do you get to sleep? Around midnight, about that. Okay, so that's a solid eight hours. Mm -hmm. um, and so what has been one of the hardest decisions you've had to make and kind of how did you approach it in terms of problem solving? Mm, hardest decision in what context? In DC Hard builder decisions. There haven't really been been any any really hard decisions that I have had to make recently. I think it was mostly just things that like followed. It, it's more like I guess the hardest decision is like what to focus on, what to learn, what what to get excited about. But I spent a really long time trying to figure this out. Um, mostly like the past few years. So, so I guess exploration and prioritizing what, what to focus on has been like really one of the hardest things that I've, I've been trying to solve the past few years. And how did I solve it? Well, I guess I talked to a lot of people from the space that are building different things across different, different areas, whether it's like MEV, whether it's DeFi, whether it's, um, like NFTs or, or whatnot. And eventually, like, I feel like what I resonate the most with is foundational technology. Um, things, things that are, like, are able to, to not necessarily be the use case in the end, but um, sort of lay the foundation, uh, whether it's like protocol development or cryptography. So I've really gotten excited about cryptography and the primitives you can build on top of it. And more specifically, I would say zero knowledge cryptography, where you're able to, to essentially do two kinds of, uh, you get two kinds of properties from zero knowledge cryptography. One is um, the validity. So you can make, you can make a proof that some, some computation happened correctly, and you can verify that that computation happened correctly without having to perform the computation yourself. And then the second property is that you're able to, to essentially um, obscure or um, 
hide parts of that computation without losing the the sort of validity side of things or like the verifiability of of the computation and and i feel like like i've managed to to talk to enough people and to to learn a lot about a lot of different things and eventually um through exploration and trying things out for myself i managed to um sort of find what i'm really interested about or really interested in and decided to to focus myself on getting better at those those areas. And do you do any DeFi trading? Mm, I haven't really done any trading in the past year and a half. No, I, I sort of put put any focus on finances away for the past few months, and I guess almost over a year now, because I wanted to more I wanted to focus more on on learning and improving at different things that I care about. Makes sense. Because I was kind of thinking about when you're assessing a project. So um, it looks like you're quite fluid when something piques your interest. You try to find out more about it and then you decide if it's truly interesting or not. Mm -hmm. um, but do you ever have like a goal thing where you look at a specific project and you have a framework for approaching whether or not assessing this project, um, what attributes are interesting or would make it interesting or make it sound and make mm -hmm. it something fundamentally good? Yeah. Uh, so for me, I usually get interested in projects based on, um, first of all, like the use case of like what are they trying to accomplish and all be all. Um, and then if, if, if their use case is something that piques my interest, whether it's like scaling, whether it's uh, identity or, or whatnot, um, I just sort of try to look at whether their tech stack makes sense or whether like the team building it is, is legitimate. Uh, it's usually like, really, really easy to tell if, if there is a team skilled enough to be able to build the use case that they really want to build. And I guess that's like the first screening um, method. Uh, I don't necessarily like screen projects myself. I just get interested in something and start talking to the team building it and um, excited about things that they're doing. So thinking about founders, I think that's a that's something that keeps me up at night when we're looking at all the collapses that happened in 2022 and how much of it is just poor risk management and bad actors on part of these, I guess, centralized but crypto-focused businesses that were out there. What do you think of assessing founders and like, what's your take on everything that happened in 2022? Mm, I feel like I'm not necessarily the best person to ask about what I feel about founders because like, personally, I've not really been in close contact with with more founders besides uh, Worldcoin. Um, I feel like th there's like people that have different takes on this, but for me personally, as long as the person has the, the right skill set and is really passionate about the specific use case that they want to build, um, that's, that's like the only, the only criteria I mostly care about. Um, things that happened this year, well, I feel like most of the things that have gone wrong this year or like 2022 were not necessarily related to crypto. There were crypto products, but they were not based on the core core cryptography or, or core blockchain principles or anything remotely close to that. It was just centralized exchanges or centralized entities that went underwater because they got either liquidated or like they put too much risk or just committed fraud uh, in different, different areas. So like my, my tech for like this year is, is well, even though a lot of these sort of projects um, blew up because they had either bad risk management or, or were doing uh, illegitimate uh, things, 
it, it doesn't necessarily impact the, the the overall outlook of the space long term. And so I'm I'm still optimistic. Like I've, I've I haven't really felt um what happened this year personally, um because I'm, I was not financially exposed. Um besides just holding ETH, but I feel like like I've like stopped caring about the price in the past year. Um, mostly trying to focus on learning and building. So I, I was fairly away from, from any of the bad things that happened. How does this feel compared to the last crypto winter? Is it different? Mm, so I joined right um, during like the peak bull market of 2017. And once in one bust, I, 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 was, I was 17 at the time. So I was never like financially exposed during the, the winter until now. So before I wasn't exposed financially. So for me, it was whatever. Like, I don't care if Bitcoin went down like from 17,000 to 3.6 or 3.7 during the 2020 um, Black Thursday crash. So, so for me, I was never exposed in the beginning. Um, so I, I cannot relate to the financial side of things. But in terms of um, vibes, I feel like people are starting to care a lot more about legitimate um, projects or legitimate people in general, um, the, the, the sort of feeling that everybody is like frothy and reckless or just like in it for, for, for the money, um, flashes away, but it also must be because like on Twitter, I usually don't follow people that think about those things. So for me, it's mostly just like you go back to building and learning during the bear market and people around you are mostly doing the same. And, and yeah, during the bull market, then people are more, more people enter the market, some get burned, some not. So I yeah. Um, what's your most controversial opinion? I feel like you're mm -hmm. so PC and I want to get out of the zone. It's not necessarily controversial, I would say. Um, but for me, it's like, I'm, I'm not really excited about people launching new L1s anymore. Um, unless there's like some really fundamental reason for them to do so. Um, it's not really controversial. It's like mostly, mostly like most of the research that has been do done recently is sort of trying to solve some core problems and a lot of the alt L1s, even though they have like interesting architectural decisions, they sometimes just disregard just how hard it is to build an L1 and sustain sustain uh, the ecosystem in general if you go through a bear market and uh, like people people focus on financial upside and not necessarily about the technology long term so that's sort of like i guess my hot take it's like i don't necessarily i i don't like you know once been launched here and there all the time. yeah and do you have um attributes in mind of what it takes to sustain an ecosystem and also, do you feel like there's an underrated L1 out there? Mm, I feel like intellectual honesty is one of the biggest ones for me. If, if the people or the team building a new solution is friendly towards everybody else, tries to learn from them, engages in other ecosystems to learn more about how they're solving specific problems, if when they're approached with critique, if they're able to respond in good faith and not attack other ecosystems just because somebody might have criticized something. If um, they have uh, a sort of community and mindshare uh, that's big enough, right? Like Ethereum, the, the reason why Ethereum is where it is, is because it was able to capture a lot of the people that were really good faith 
and hardworking during the 2017-2016 the monster time periods where nothing, like pe- people thought that blockchain was eventually gonna like, like once, once the bear market hit, people weren't sure that blockchain was gonna, gonna stay and like what was gonna be here to stay because like things seemed really unsure, like no, not, no applications were on it, prices were down. And I feel like it, Ethereum attracted the right people that were here for, for the interesting technology, for the use cases, for things they could do. So if an ecosystem is able to capture these kinds of people, if, and if they're able to just be practically um, like good, good faith actors in the space, then I feel like they have a shot at, at succeeding long term. And so like, I think one of the things is, um, especially for really main layer ones, et cetera, it's gotten quite expensive. Do you feel like we should be prioritizing as a whole, as an ecosystem, to make things more affordable for people? I mean, there's like different reasons why something is more expensive, less expensive. Like Ethereum is expensive because it's it runs on computers that people can afford. Um, it can it can run on a laptop, like a ThinkPad, with like if you have an SSD big enough, it can run on a very 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 low 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 intensive computer, like. You can have a Raspberry Pi almost, well, not even, but like a very like small computer somewhere in your home, and you can run an Ethereum full node if you have a big SSD, like a two terabyte SSD to store Ethereum state. And that's the reason why Ethereum is expensive because it can run on, on consumer hardware, and there is a very limited um, sort of um, set of um, like you, you kind of have a very powerful. Um, algorithm run on something that's like consumer hardware. That's why like if you have Solana, right, like for things like Avalanche, they, they run on like validators that are huge like racks on some server in some data center. And they're able to process a lot of more a lot more transactions, a lot more different things. And they were also built in a time where they Right, so like Ethereum was built in 2015. The state of the art for computer hardware has changed a lot since. And so a lot of these projects are sort of taking advantage of like new new paradigms in the computer hardware and sort of centralizing parts of it to then say, oh, we're cheaper, we're faster, we're better. And we have like this cool new um, like execution layer. Let's say like, like Solana has C-level. Um, and I don't know, like there's many other ones that have different ones. But, but yeah, like, it's not necessarily about optimizing for, for cheapness. It's about optimizing for a balance between just how decentralized it is, how uh, cheap it is, and how secure it is. Um, that's, that's sort of like, that, that was like the, the initial like scaling trilemma. You, if, you, if you sacrifice centralization, you can be more scalable. If you sacrifice um, scalability, you can be more decentralized. That's sort of like more of like the route that Ethereum took, like more secure, more decentralized, but less scalable. Um, however, Ethereum like optimized for, instead of being a fast execution layer, it optimized for being a settlement layer in which like we have very strong crypto economic consensus. Oh, sorry, somebody's ringing the bell. Um, yeah, so um, Ethereum optimized for to be a network that has a really strong crypto economic security from the proof of stake point of view, just like you have billions of dollars securing this network. And once you have that, that's like the really hard thing to get. Like 
many participants in a network that's secure that are secured by lots of value and lots of like work or whatever the, me the mechanism used and then leaving the execution for rollups and allowing them to have a mechanism in which they're able to do the execution and then inherit ethereum security there are like different exploration routes one was like the fraud proofs uh, route and the other one was or is the validity proofs route so you have zk rollups and optimistic rollups and ethereum is optimizing towards rollups being able to post data to ethereum um, there's like efforts like eip 4844 right we have like blob space where you can like you have a separate storage on ethereum where you can post to from rollups and so i feel like that's that's what you should optimize for a balance in between how scalable you are decentralized and secure um, in a way that you're striving towards maximizing all those three in a reasonable way. Makes sense. But I would love to see um, solutions like Rocketful continue to be created, where it kind of almost uh, fractionalizes a lot of it so that people can get in. Mm, yeah, I mean, I mean, you, you mentioned Rocketful, which is a liquid staking derivative. Um, they, they're, uh, they're good and bad in different ways. Um, they make it easier for people to stake. Yeah. So essentially, um, it's it's something that makes it easier for people to participate in consensus, right? Like people are able to give their value uh, away and earn a, a almost risk-free yield. The the actual risk-free yield is actually staking on Ethereum. Uh, by risk-free, I mean this, this, the, the risk you're taking by staking on Ethereum is the same as just holding ETH. Uh, it's just native, native, native yield. There's, there's no risk attached uh, besides holding ETH. That, that's the only risk. And maybe like some issue in Ethereum staking. But if there's an issue in Ethereum staking, your ETH, your unstaked ETH is also at risk. It's the same, same sort of risk. Um, if, if you use a staking derivative, then you have the, the risk of the smart contract for staking that sort of you have this operator that um, stakes 16 ETH and then other people stake alongside that 16 ETH and the operator can get slashed if he misbehaves. Um, right? So it, it makes it easier for people to participate in, in this yield. Uh, but also has like some issues on the centralization front with MEV, right? If you have a few entities having most of the validators and most of them get to propose blocks, then they're able to eventually, if they have enough um, sort of enough of a share of the of the of the proof of stake um, validators, they're able to mess with some um, protocol guarantees. If you have more than thirty-three, then you can sort of um, prevent the chain from finalizing in some cases. If you have more than 66, then you can do like double spends and like whatever, whatever you want, essentially. Uh, a good thing about Ethereum or just like any proof of stake mechanism, but Ethereum specifically, because it has like sort of the most complex proof of stake implementation to date, um, is that it's really more resistant to 51% attacks that proof of work. Uh, if you get more than 51% of the hash rate on Bitcoin, uh, you're essentially done. Like there's nothing you can do to go back unless you result to the social layer, right? Like the social layer would have to fork away the attackers and start anew. Uh, but it's really hard to recover from a 51% attack as the protocol. Like Bitcoin as a protocol is broken and then the social layer needs to so somehow like solve the problem. 
Um, on Ethereum, you have sort of uh, the slashing mechanism, which allows you to make a comeback. Uh, it's easier than in proof of work. Because if, if somebody starts attacking the network with a huge part of the stake, then they get slashed because they're doing things that are invalid. Full nodes can check that like, okay, this is invalid, blah, blah, blah. Other validators can can make them, can, can like submit other stations that like these people are misbehaving and you can easily, more easily recover from an attack like that because people would have to continually keep buying ETH from available supply and keep getting slashed uh, to keep attacking the network. And that's really expensive. And then you have the social layer on top of that. It's something if something really bad happened, like if Ethereum just like broke down because of like all the client teams just like pushed some big mistake and like the network calls or like whatever. Um, like those are like Armageddon type things that like are very unlikely to happen because you have like rigorous tests. But like if there were to happen, if there is a social layer that'd be able to recover from it, it would be Ethereum. That's like mostly why I'm in the Ethereum ecosystem for me. Like the, the sheer amount of quality um, people in the Ethereum space, just how legitimate they are, how how hardworking, how passionate, how smart, how capable, um, and just how like the big variety and how many different teams from different places you have. It makes it so redundant that if anything were to happen to Ethereum, they're just rebuild it eventually. The, the community is too strong, I feel like, and the values will just emerge as a different thing. Very inspiring. I also love Ethereum. And I'm assuming that this is also your favorite top pick blockchain. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not, I mean, I guess like there's different ones that I like, but for, for me, like Ethereum is something that embodies the, all the right values and is striving towards solving all of the hard problems they're facing in the most, um, most honest way possible. Um, intellectually honest, at least, um, where people are very open-minded, people so go about solving problems the right way. Um, people are very open and willing to hear critic, like critics, like, oh, like if this protocol is bad, then let's like fix some some problems with it, like right, like if Ethereum now is struggling with MEV, let's let's do something. Yeah, for sure. I think we can all appreciate the ethos. And back to the underrated L1s, any takes? Underrated L1s. Uh... Or least bullish. I mean, there's interesting L1s um, from a technological perspective to me, but I, I really have no idea about their tokens or like how, how, how they work. Uh, Mina protocol is interesting. Uh, Alio is interesting. Um, they're interesting to me because they they have a lot of cool cryptographers doing a lot of cool ZK stuff. And I really respect their work. Um, I, I really don't know about the, the, the token tokenomics of any of them, but it's just something that piques my interest. So I guess Mina and Elio would be cool mentions. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So obviously we know that you've been working at WorldCoin. Um, what helped you get to making that decision that you want to work there? Yeah, so, so I feel like what helped me the most was meeting the team in person. Um, if, if you talk to the team, um, you, you'll, it's mostly comprised of people that have the same, same sort of ethos and same value alignment as people in the Ethereum ecosystem. It's privacy first, um, technology first, and user focused. Uh, like at WorldCoin, we, we have um, 
like you, you can read our blog post on privacy. If you go to worldcoin.org slash privacy, you can, you can read all about it. Uh, essentially, we do not collect biometrics unless people opt in for data collection. And most people don't, don't opt in. So, so once, once you go to the orb, you get registered. The orb creates uh, a thing called an iris code, which is just a representation of your iris. And the original image gets deleted. And this specific uh, iris code uh, does not contain, contain any biometric information per se. Uh, it contains only a representation of it, which encapsulates its uniqueness. So if, if I were to sort of give you sort of like an illustration for it, if maybe people that have done like linear algebra or, or just like high school math, um, you might have learned of the concept of a vector. Um, you can illustrate it as a, as a arrow in space. Uh, and so essentially you can, you can take an image of an iris and you can make a representation that's like this arrow pointing somewhere. And if a person gets uh, uh, scanned once, you generate sort of this iris code, which is a, a, like a vector or an arrow pointing in space. And if the, if the person gets scanned again, the, the resulting arrow will point in almost the same direction. And if you do uh, a sort of, if you measure distance between uh, a new arrow and all the existing arrows that have been registered to date, you're able to tell if that person is unique or not. And thanks to like biometrics in general, thanks to the human eye, the human iris, you have so much um, sort of entropy or randomness encoded inside of a human eye that it's really hard to have a collision. It's it's almost impossible for two people to have the same same uh, pattern, even if you have like 100 billion people on Earth. The the hard question or the hard problem to to do uh, uniqueness checks is mostly creating a good algorithm that is able to, to um, convert an iris to a representation of it in a way that you have um, low false positive and low, low false negative rates in which you have like a, a low likelihood of some person being able to double scan and get two unique identifiers or more potentially, or a person that hasn't signed up yet uh, have a collision with some other person and they, they're not able to get a unique identifier. So those are like the hard problems. But like WorldCoin itself, the only thing that is stored on-chain is this iris code. The iris code does not contain any private information. And uh, if you're using WorldID, which is the, the protocol that we built to do uh, cyber resistance on-chain, um, it, it does zero knowledge proofs on top of these iris codes. So what, what you can do is you create a zero knowledge proof that you're a unique user, that your iris code is in a list of a million signed up users. We, we, have, we have a little bit over a million users signed up um, to date and that you haven't performed an action. So the zero knowledge proof has these two components, right? Like the fact that you're unique and that you haven't done an action before. And you have an you have an anonymity you have an anonymity pool as big as the users that have signed up on Worldcoin. So you can say that you're essentially one in one point like something million people that have signed up, but you don't know who you are. Or like like people don't know who you are. People have no no biometric information associated with anything that you're doing, um, and not even your actions are associated with a specific ID. So it's not even censorable. That's, that's why it's privacy-preserving proof-of-personhood. It's, it's just making a zero-knowledge proof on top of 
some some integer. Yeah. yeah, very interesting. And um, so I'm also interested in the hardware that is used. Mm-hmm. So that obviously had to be developed. And is there a separate team that works on that piece and also the embedded software? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so we have a hardware team. Um, we're in the process of open sourcing parts of the hardware. So if, if you want to stay tuned to that, um, you can uh, look for worldcoin.org slash blog for announcements about open, sourcer- open sourcing. I think by the time this lands, it's probably going to be open sourced. All right, cool. Um, yeah, so so the hardware itself is something that was built over two and a half years. And there's like a bunch of things to it. I don't know if we have the time to get into the depths of it, but yeah, my response to this would be just look out for, for the announcements and there you'd be able to read more once 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 it's open sourced. Okay, I guess I have a fun burning question. So this would probably be the shortest one. What about dead eyeballs? Can they be scanned? I don't think that's a question that it's not something I I think I can even answer or like I don't know how to answer that. <laughs> okay. Just in case it's actually possible. <laughs> no idea. Uh, I mean, it should fail. I think yeah. it should fail from the from the algorithm side of things, but I'm not, no idea. Never never asked that question. Never. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Cool. Um. Let's do the lightning round. Let's see. Okay, so these are just like fun, really short response questions. Um, so we can start with the first one. Oh no, it's gonna. Oh wait, we're not using video, so that's fine. Um, okay, first one: sweet or savory? Mm, savory. Um, favorite thing that you read recently? Mm. An introduction to number theory. It's a blog post. Um, I forgot the author, but yeah, it's it's a blog post. If if you just search, let me just find it real quick. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't really remember, but it's 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 sort of like a, a primer on number theory. Cute. Your favorite part of the day. Late evening. Why? Mm, I don't know. I like the sunset. Oh, okay. Um, do you work with music or in silence? Both. Depends. On? Usually on. Yeah, I listen to drum and bass a lot. No, what does it depend on? Oh, what does it depend on? I don't know. Just Sometimes I feel like it, sometimes I don't. There's <laughs> no hard rule. Okay. Um, your favorite entertainment series of all time? Mm, probably One Piece, the anime. Interesting. Okay. Um, idea of the best day or evening ever? Mm, probably learning about things that I'm interested in. Right now, I guess it's either Rust or cryptography. Yeah. Actually, um, follow-up question because very important for me uh, in my decision-making process. How do you... Um, how do you manage switching costs from different activities? Switching costs as in? So I have, uh, I think I struggle with finding the right balance of how to switch when I'm doing something mentally. I mean, just anything really. Um, let's say I was reading emails to switching over to some deep work. I find that I don't have the best way to like help me switch gears. Mm. I feel like I just, I, I'm kind of basic on this. I, I just have a list of tasks for the day. 
and I just go through the ones that I feel like I want to do more at that specific time. And once I cross it out, I just move on to the next thing. I don't necessarily have a management system for it. You're a machine. I wish. Um, yeah, no, that's something to aspire to, actually. Um, the best piece of advice you've ever received? Explore when you're young, I guess. That's that's what sort of broke me from my local maxima, like from my environments. That's what made me sort of look beyond on the internet, like what's possible out there, what's possible to be done, what, what you can learn, what you can do. It, it expands your horizons by a lot. Also traveling. So I guess like explore when you're, when, when you're young. Love it. Um, we talked about the protocols. Is there anyone in crypto you haven't had dinner with but would like to? Mm, I guess, yeah. Tarun and Guillermo and Gers. Uh, they're two of my favorite people in CT. Cool. Um, your spirit animal. Uh, not really sure. Never thought of the question. I don't know. I like dogs. I guess dogs. Yeah. Do you believe in astrology? No. <laughs> um, do you drink? And yes, yes. What's your pick of poison? I've never had alcohol in my life. Oh, right. I forgot this. Oh, we're doing Yes. Crazy. <laughs> Love it. Um, uh, and your latest music obsession. Mm. I guess it's just drum and bass. Uh, if, if you want. Sorry, somebody's ringing my bell. Um, yeah. I'll, I'll pause for a little bit. I'll come back. I can't hear you. Wait. Welcome back. Oh, I can, I can hear you. Is there a particular artist that you're listening to right now? Uh, particular artist. Um, I listen to a lot of artists, um, mostly like from the same genre. That's called liquid drum and bass. It's just the sort of softer version of drum and bass. Um, I guess my favorite artist would be Kino, uh, spelled K-E-E-N-O, and Either uh, ether, etherwood, etherwood, yeah. So it's like ether and wood, etherwood. Yeah, I feel like those are probably by bi viral beats. Is that what they call them? But by, by what? Something to do with the brain, <laughs> brain beats. Oh my god! DMV is word of either. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, wait, back to the alcohol for a second. I can't remember your reasoning. You're saying that because you don't want it to obviously mess with your head or like prevent you from clearly thinking. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's, for me, it was like growing up, I didn't like how people acted when they were, um, like drunk essentially. 
And I, I started saying when I was a kid, like, oh, I'm never going to drink. And I kept repeating that over and over. And eventually it just became part of who I am, I guess. Um, I don't have a problem with other people drinking, but it's just part of my personality, I guess, where I just integrated that into who I am. Who I am and I just don't have the necessity for it. It doesn't taste good for, from what people tell me. It doesn't give you like any meaningful like up, up, upgrades or like upside. There's no upside for, for, for in it for it, like besides being like loosened or like being able to enjoy the moment more. But for me, I'm able to, to have fun either way. And I, I'm fine without it. So there's no motivation for me to do it anyway. All right, cool. So I think we can relax now. This is just like for us in term, in case I need a little bit of filler, but maybe like another, mm-hmm. just just a wind down, really. Yeah, How was that? Good. Was it stressful? I, I feel like I'm not in the best headspace for a podcast right now. I just came off work and I forgot to eat because like I, I sort of like I have two different calendars. I have my Google calendar where like I have three Google accounts and those converge on the same calendar. And then mm-hmm. I have my ProtonMail account. And if I have a new event on the ProtonMail calendar, it does not appear on the other calendars. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't aware. I, I was aware that was today. I was just yeah. wasn't aware that was like right now. Because like <laughs> when you messaged me on Telegram, I was about to make myself food. <laughs> and I haven't eaten like all day, like a major meal. And it's like 6 p.m. here. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I'm like kind of kind of hungry. My brain is kind of foggy in thoughts. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sort of not happy with a few of the answers, I think. It's so okay. Like, I'm, I'm like sort of like dead in the podcast. Like I'm not alive. <laughs> well, this is something that I think about a lot. Like when I first met you, I was literally like, oh my God, he's a robot, but he's just living and breathing. I was like, I want to know more. <laughs> and then <laughs> sometimes you seem like super chill and I'm like, okay, he's just like normal. He has like these moments. I'm still still trying to like decide how much of which one you are. I'm kind of both. Like depends like what I'm doing. Um, like if I'm with friends, I'm, I'm like my personality with friends is completely different than the one that you got on the podcast. I feel like I feel like what you got on the podcast is not even my personality. <laughs> it's it's just like me tired trying to give coherent yeah, exactly. answers. <laughs> Yeah, like I like this so much better. Like where you're just relaxed. <laughs> I guess this is yeah. Especially like if you, if you give me like world going questions, like we have a whole marketing and comms team, and like there's a, a bunch of stuff. There's a bunch yeah. of stuff that like I'm able, I'm not able to say, and having to think about those things while giving an answer that something is going to be public about things that are like ongoing. It's it's really hard and. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. When I'm tired and hungry, it's even harder. So I'm like a dead person. Yeah. Well, the range of topics were probably a little bit like capped. (laughs) Yeah, true. I mean, the the something that I think it's okay is like the the like the early section, like when we were talking about like my past. Nothing Mm -hmm. there was like bad. Yeah, I might want to like listen to it whole, but I think this is the thing. Like, I'm still trying to figure out, like, you know, where the yeah. vibe is going. Okay. Um, yeah, I think like this would be chill, but then I just, of course, like I don't want to like step on anything. Um, that would be no. I think both of us were probably like not great at balancing like personal and then like you know like more frigid responses, which we don't want as well. Yeah, uh, yeah, I guess, I guess. 
But I'm curious to go back and hear what it sounded like. Yeah, I'm going to be interested to hear that as well. Yeah, I might give like funny intros and outros. <laughs> what do you mean? Funny intros oh, and just outros? Like when I'm summarizing the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And like, you know, in general, um, like what's your headspace at? Like, I, is it hard trying to balance your personas? Because definitely I think a few of us have been talking what it really means to like have these other like non people that we want to be. But obviously, like as time goes on, it gets harder and harder. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like my Anna persona is not that far off from who I am in yeah. terms of like what, what, what my values are. Like, you know, like Ethereum values essentially, just like decentralization, accessibility, um, just like letting everybody use a specific thing that makes their life better in some way and get, they get value out of it. Mm-hmm. I feel like, like those values are values that both my personas have, like whether it's like me or me, DC. The same yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. In general, I feel like we're we're the same. It's just like DC is when, when I'm when I'm DC, I'm more like somebody that talks about technical stuff. Mm-hmm. And when I'm me, I have more stuff to it than just that. Yeah. Would you describe yourself as a serious person? I mean, I'm serious in the sense that everything I do or that I put time in is something serious mm-hmm. or mostly serious. But I, I don't think that I'm like, when I'm interacting with people, I don't have a serious vibe to it. If it makes mm-hmm. sense. I've never seen or heard you crack a joke. <laughs> I do joke a lot, uh, but not... <laughs> I guess it's like they're more like inside jokes with friends that I have, like things that have happened, and then like I bring them up and things like that. Okay. Okay. There's always like like funny, funny. It's mostly like I make jokes for the person, not not for like l- let's say that. Remember the time when we went through here and you fell down here and you did that. Okay. Okay. Those, those <laughs> kinds of things. I, I'm not yeah. necessarily good like a like a. I'm not like a good like manufactured joke teller that like i make them in my head and then i say them it's just most like recollecting fun things that have happened yeah yeah okay got it what's your biggest fear to well i guess like the first one is like losing my family uh, i guess like that's like a human fear that i think many people have um i used to have a, like a strong fear of death growing up mm-hmm. uh, but i guess like that's more manageable now uh and i guess the third third one would be like dying before giving a contribution to the world that i would be like proud of just leaving that and nothing else i think it's interesting because like to get a little bit psychoanalytical i feel like they kind of drive each other like your fear of death makes it so important for you to leave your mark and to like make these changes to the world that you're living in Mm -hmm. i guess like the biggest driver for me is not fear. It's mostly love. Like I have a love for my family. That's why I don't want to like lose them. I have a love of life. That's why I don't want to die. I have a love of people. That's why I want to like leave them something. Um, that's that's sort of like my motivation for things. I, I guess like love drives fear from that sense. Like if you have love, you don't want to lose it. Um, I guess yeah, that's, sure. that's the short answer. 
And I think one thing that you mentioned that was really interesting um, was you said that like you're not really here for kind of, I guess, like the DGEN culture that's really developed or was it always there in crypto? Like, how do you see that? Like, how do you feel about that part? I mean, uh, I'm not in it for the DGEN culture, but the DGEN culture is is fun sometimes. Mm -hmm. There's fun aspects to it, of course. Like, it's not all bad. Um, I'm... And there's different meanings to degen. There is degen as in like we're in the wild west. We're like doing new things. We're like pioneering these things. Um, there's degen as in like I'm on a 100x leverage and no stop loss. Yeah. Uh, and like I'm I'm betting my 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 mortgage money from my house. And if I get liquidated, I lose my house. Like that's kind of that other kind of degen. Um, I, I'm not I'm not against it. Like it's just part of the the space. Uh, in some regards, I don't like like excessive risk because you, you are not able to manage life with excessive risk. Uh, but yeah, I, I like the culture. Like overall, like CT is nice. Like people are good. Um, people are in general like like a really hardworking, looking forward to the future, building things for other people, selflessly. In some some occasions, like people do a lot of public goods, a lot of like support of people that are like maybe underprivileged or like need help. People share information very willingly. Um, I feel like something that I've never experienced before. It was just like the best people in a space, like in an industry, just sit down with you and talk to you about whatever you're struggling with. Even if they have like their own stuff that they're working on, that's probably even like very important to them as well. They're, they're always like willing to just like give you like some help, introduce you to some people, uh, give you information. And if you ask anyone, they're very willing. If if you if you're if you phrase it the right way, they're very willing to help you. Well, by the way, you're. I remember you're really into fitness, right? Yes, yes. Well, I, I was a lot in high school, and I sort of stopped keeping up with it during COVID. But now I'm getting back into fitness in general. Yeah. I'm trying a two day fast to get myself into <laughs> what do you call it? Autophagy mode. <laughs> Where like your body starts cleaning up and eating dead cells because it's really hungry. <laughs> I mean, I, fasting is good, but I, I wouldn't do more than intermittent fasting. Just like you don't eat for sixteen hours, you eat for eight hours, or like within the span of eight hours. That's that's something that like provably like helps you somewhat, or at least for some people, it has some positive effects. I, I'm not really sure about like like two day fasting i don't really haven't really done research into that i did like a 36 hour fast last week and i really liked it so i'm gonna see if i enjoy a 50 hour fast this week jesus i know all right cool i'm gonna let you guys get to it i feel like it's time we had our wind down now it's time to kind of like go chill chill okay. i'll let you okay, go okay. Hey, bye. yeah she says bye
right. I'll catch you later. Catch you later. And Let me know how, how it went. <laughs> Ho- hopefully there is something usable there. No, for sure. For sure there is. Okay. I think there is like a part of the wind down that was actually usable. Yeah. Like me about the, <laughs> me talking about Ethereum and the social air, like things like that. Those things are usable. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Definitely. <laughs> All right. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.